0: Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 64. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com.
1: I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com.
0: And our very special guest is Alistair Macleod. He's Head of Research at Gold Money. This episode is part one of a mini-series on what is money. It was recorded on the 23rd of June. Welcome to the show, Alistair. That's very much my pleasure. Oh, it's fantastic to have you on. I know there's going to be a lot to talk about. But first of all, you were telling us about how you met Tim and how you know Tim. Let's, let's have that story first.
2: Yes, well, Tim's obviously forgotten.
0: <laughs> which is brilliant. <laughs> um,
2: it must have been, I think, about 1999, something like that. Yeah. Um, Tim was part of a team that had joined uh, Ansbacher, which was a bank based in London. Uh, sadly
1: sadly defunct merchandise. yeah that's a long story what did
2: you do tim (laughs) (laughs) we'll get we'll get to that well anyway um i i had this um this this guy coming over to see me in guernsey because i was a director of the channel islands bank and um i thought oh god you know one of these Bloody analyst from London, um, who's going to tell me that the markets, you know, buy this, buy that, and all the rest of it, and never have any idea that he could sell anything or recommend to sell anything. And then Tim bowls up and starts talking what we now know to be Austrian economics. Wow! It, it, it was I, it, I was bowled over actually because he was echoing very much my thoughts. So I had to do a quick double take and be polite. Fantastic. <laughs> Oh, and nice. that was a long time ago, and I don't know if you remember now, Tim, but um, I've, I've never forgotten it because um, it was so unusual for a city analyst to come in and talk sense.
1: That's high, high praise indeed. Well, that's a, <laughs> kind. So I think it's probably worth it. So before, well, we can either talk about um, gold money or do you want to talk, talk about how, how you got to, to gold money and sort of what your career has been like today?
2: Well, um, I sort of retired. Um, I came back from Guernsey and we've moved to the UK. Uh, And um, I sort of started writing a a blog Um, and it caught the eye of James Turk. And we we met and it rather developed from there. Um, And uh, so I've been very much part of the gold money story for some time. Um, The gold money was then taken over. Um, on an agreed basis by um, a, a Canadian company called, at that stage, it was called Bitgold. It then changed its, its branding to gold money, uh, run by a guy called uh, Roy Sabagh, who... Um, Uh, I've never met anything, anyone like Roy. He was extremely clever, very entrepreneurial and could suss out things very, very quickly. Came over to Jersey. I met him in Jersey and uh, he must have been jet lagged having flown over from America. Um, But he immediately worked out in the space of about an hour um, who was going to go and who was going to stay and how he was going to reorganize the office and all the rest of it. I was actually blown away by this guy's ability and I still am. He's um, he really is uh, a very good entrepreneur, and since then he's gone to set up, gone on to set up Mene, which basically retails twenty-four karat gold um, at a price which is twenty percent over bullion, uh, with a guarantee of a buyback at ten percent under the bullion price. So. The original people who, who bought uh, Mene jewellery are now on a profit on their gold. I mean, it was, it's quite simple. What he's doing is exactly what they're doing in India and China. Um, and uh, But coming back to gold money, basically what we do is we allow people to run their lives in gold. Uh, and um, when it comes to spending, uh, convert it into the fiat currency of their choice um, and spend it off a preloaded card. Um, but it does mean that you can basically run your life in gold, which I think is a preparation for the time when uh, paper currencies really do start to lose their purchasing power at an accelerating rate.
0: How did you first get interested in Austrian economics and and therefore gold? I think
2: the answer to that is I was never really that interested in Keynesian economics. Um, and, um, you know, I knew it was a load of dare I say, horse shit. Uh, There were so many contradictions in it. Um, I only really discovered uh, Austrian economics as such sometime later, I think probably a little while after I met Tim. Um, But really what it did is it it sort of, if you like, formalized uh, my free market approach to economics. Um, And uh, of course, from that point of view, it has been fascinating. So the journey of of uh, learning what uh, the early Austrians uh, discovered, and how right it was—you know, Menger, Bernoulli, Mises, uh, Hayek—and going on to um, uh, Rothbard and so on—it um, has a, act- actually been a fascinating journey.
0: So, gold is no longer money inverted commas as as in ah oh, wh- Well, I, this I, is what I was. I, go- I, I would beg to differ on that. Well, <laughs> that, obviously, I want to get your take on that, but. Of course, it was currency at one point, and now it it isn't. Sterling silver was actually s- silver; uh, that's where it gets its name from. But it it's no longer. But so, why would you say gold and silver are still relevant to us today? Well,
2: well Paul, you're being very, very European on this one. Um, I'm playing devil's have... advocate, by the way. <laughs> you have suffered the fate of so many of our uh, fellow men in Europe who bamboozled by their governments into accepting state currency. <laughs> um, but actually, if you look um, uh, into the wider world, and particularly if you look at Asia, you see that uh, gold is still very much money. Um, I mean, even, you know, Navy SEALs and uh, SAS guys, you know, when they go behind uh, the lines in anywhere in, uh, almost anywhere in the world, they carry, you know, uh, sovereigns or you know Krugerans or whatever um, as the only means in which they can really barter their way out of, out of trouble um, so yes, I mean gold still is money. The fact that it doesn't circulate is probably more due to Gresham's law than uh, the idea that um, the state uh, status currencies have some sort of supremacy. they could don't.
0: You, could you explain Gresham's law?
2: Well, Gresham's law is quite simple. Um, the uh, bad money drives, drives out the good. It was actually Sir Thomas Gresham going way back. I think he was the time of Elizabeth I. And he was making a comment about cli- uh, coins which were clipped. Um, if yes. you've got a coin which was not clipped then by god you hung on to it uh, and you circulated the ones that had bits shaved off them yes. so that was yeah. the bad money driving out the good
0: that's why the pound coins or certain coins have those marks along the edge of them because of course when you got a gold coin going back to the roman times you would try and shave as much as you can off of it and then still get rid of it as it were and, and to collect as much of the valuable uh you know metal but um so well, yeah, that was, yeah, that
2: was the origin of it, but yeah. that is no longer true because you're shaving base metal. Yeah, and yeah, that's of course.
0: Yeah, of course. No, copper copper coins aren't even copper anymore. So yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs>
2: <laughs> too right.
0: So, so in terms of other reasons for holding gold, other than it being a currency, what what would be the other reasons why we'd hold it? I mean, investing in stock market, investing in property, inv- investing in other things we we can we could all do that but gold why would we also think about investing in gold well you have to draw a
2: distinction between investment and money gold is money it is not an investment it is um if you like it competes with um pound notes and i i mean notes not rather than, than um uh, entries on a computer or a deposit in a bank physical gold is um cash and it's the cash if you like of choice by human civilization for at least the last 5,000 years. And furthermore, uh, when the Spaniards uh, finally discovered the New World, uh, um, all the gold there in the hands of the Aztecs, the Incas, and all the rest of it, was similarly valued by them completely independently of our civilization in, uh, in the Mediterranean. Uh, you know, if you go back all that time. Uh, so it just has this quality, which means that it is, if you like, the medium of exchange. And that's, that is the important function. And not only does it act as a medium of exchange, but if, let us say, you decide to hold on to it temporarily before spending it, then it retains its value. And that is something that goes all the way back I mean, I don't know if you've ever been to Cairo and gone to the um, uh, the museum there um, and seen Tutankhamun's mask, but it is an amazing experience. Here is this mask, three thousand years old, and it looks as if it was made yesterday. It is absolutely extraordinary. And that is the quality of gold. It is incorruptible. Um, But it is money. It is not an investment. Now, there are gold-related investments, um, and they run from uh, paper equivalents such as ETFs. Um, Obviously, you've also got futures and forwards and all the rest of it, which are based on gold. Um, And uh, you've got gold mines. Um, So you do have investment-related um uh, uh businesses entities um which are tied um in various by various means to the price of gold but gold itself is money and it's a mistake to think of it as as anything
0: else and what about for inflation and perhaps deflation in those periods well it's it's interesting um gold
2: the quantity of gold in circulation as money obviously does produce effects of inflation or relative deflation. Um, The inflationary periods were, for example, after the Californian gold rush and also the discovery of uh, gold in South Africa. That increased the quantity of gold in circulation. But during both those periods, um, the uh, increase in production uh, which meant the uh, lowering of uh, uh, prices, if you like, through through um, uh, more efficient means of production. Particularly uh, at the turn of the nineteenth uh, and twentieth centuries, um, meant that the effect of the inflationary effect of gold was pretty much um, uh, counterbalanced by um, those economic benefits. Um, apart from that, if you look over the sweep of history, the production of gold more or less has kept uh, pace with the increase in population so on a per head basis the amount of gold in issue has been more or
0: less constant right and and what about against inflation in the economy as a hedge
2: well um it, it in theory um the purchasing power of gold rises over time because of that supply characteristic that I've just um, uh, described. Uh, And the reason for that is that if you look at um, the price of anything, uh, the price of anything will tend to fall in real terms due to competition, due to um, uh, different means of um, manufacturing evolving, and also because of technology, and so on and so forth. So uh, the purchasing power of gold over time tends to gently rise. And this was very much the feature, if you like, from uh, the period following the Napoleonic Wars, when the sovereign was first introduced, which I think was uh, 18, 16, 17, round about then, um, all the way through to the First World War. Prices did not rise, but my goodness, the uh, economy really took off. And the amazing thing is that before uh, the First World War, 80% of the world's ships The world's transport at that time uh, had been built in Britain. Now, that is quite remarkable when you think about it. And um, all that was done on the back of sound money. At least you knew that when you took a pound, a pound was a sovereign. And uh, you could change the the notes that were issued by uh, the Bank of England. That was after the the, uh, Bank Charter Act of uh, uh, 1845, I think it was. You could change those into sovereigns at any time you wanted. It was fully convertible. And indeed, the issue of banknotes by the Bank of England could only take place if they bought in gold um, and held that in reserve against that issue. The mistake done at the time was they didn't really realise that the expansion of bank credit was the creation of money by another means. And it was that that led to a series of relatively sharp uh, recessions if you say, um, after financial crises, like the over-end-earning crisis, the bearing crisis, and so on and so forth. So you had those credit crises, which are purely down to fractional reserve banking. Those continue through to today, despite of the fact that under Keynesian economics, uh, the idea was that this could be managed. No, it's actually been made even, uh, uh, even worse as a result. So... Gold as money has always been the most stable form of money, and by guaranteeing the value of money, which is, if you like, the the intermediary between your production and your spending as an individual, and your saving also, um, that gold as money retains its value. So you uh, you know, you know what you're working for, and furthermore, uh, you if you were paid in gold or something that was wholly backed by gold, uh, your wages were not being devalued by a government over-issuing currency. Very, very important point. It was that stability that produced the uh, strongest economy in the world and made Britain, with a population at the time of, I think, something like 20-odd million, the most powerful nation on earth by far.
1: One of the reasons why we invest in in gold and related assets, things like mining stocks, for our clients is... It's predicated on the following sort of chain of logic. There is too much debt in the world. And the only way of getting out of this debt predicament is, well, there are only three options. One is that governments engineer enough economic growth to service that debt, which we would now consider impossible. The second option is that you default on the debt, which we might call in a credit-based economy Armageddon. And the third option is you inflate it away. Because we think that that third inflationary option is the one that is going to be inevitable, particularly in the aftermath of a deflationary crisis that we may already have entered, because of that sort of inflationary endgame, that's the very specific reason why we make a circa twenty percent allocation of client portfolios to gold and, and and other stuff. Does that does that logic hold as far as you're concerned?
2: It uh, it holds completely. Yes. Um, in fact, personally, I would say that 20% is probably a bit on the low side, given the dangers that are mounting. Um, yes, I agree with you entirely in that analysis. Um, I think that we... I mean, what's interesting is that, um, uh, you know, the Austrians have been talking about uh, the unsoundness of um, the state-issued currencies for um, pretty much a 100 years. And um, we now have a situation where... Uh, that Armageddon scenario, which is uh, the ultimate point, if you like, in the um, in, in in the analysis, is probably coming upon us, and it's coming upon us, I think, for one very good reason, and that is we are, um, I think, in the very early stages of a developing credit crunch. Now, this is a periodic thing. It's uh, if, if if you study something called the Austrian business cycle. In fact, it's a credit cycle. Um, It happens just as the same as it's going to rain in Britain at some time in the next month. Um, And (laughs) Wimbledon starts next week, so I think it's a fairly high likelihood it's going to be on Monday. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Got it. The the other thing which I don't think people fully uh, appreciate is that uh, the... Tariff wars that President Trump has set in motion are extremely dangerous. Let's let's go back to 1929. In 1929, again, there had been a a period of credit expansion and the economy was booming and it was all wonderful. Stock market was through the roof and the bellhops were saying, buy this, buy that. Um, And everything was absolutely brilliant. And Irving Fisher was uh, declared, I think, in um, that summer of 1929 that stocks had reached a Permanently high, uh, uh, classic. Yes. Yeah. So that was that. That was that. Now, what happened in October was uh, Congress um, passed the provisions for the Glass-Steag uh, not glass for the um, Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act, and uh, this brought in another range of tariffs. There had been tariffs uh, at that time, but this was an extra layer of tariffs. When Congress passed it at the end of October, that was the month in which Wall Street began its crash. Basically, the money, the money in Wall Street spotted the effect of the Smoot-Hawley Tariff Act on American business. And that was what began to unwind the market. You then had, after that big crash in October, you had a, a, a period of stability, which lasted, I think, To something like, I was going to say from memory, but I wasn't alive at the time, it (laughs) lasted to around about April uh, 1930, when President Hoover then signed Smoot Hawley uh, into law. And at that stage, the market then started an unremitting. Fall and it fell and fell and fell with hardly any major rally until uh, the middle of 1932, by which time it had lost nearly 90% of its value from the high. Now, we have a situation where the cycle, uh, the credit cycle, is at the same point uh, that um, it was in 1929, but considerably more violent. I mean, going back onto your, you know, the way you're looking at the accumulation of debt and all the rest of it. So, the potential for a credit crunch is very, very substantial. And then, as if to really sort of, uh, if you like, uh, give us the 1929 story in spades, along comes President Trump and impl- in, in, uh, puts tariffs on Chinese uh, goods. He threatens uh, tariffs elsewhere and all the rest of it. And what happens? We have already seen that global cross-border trade has more or less imploded. What we have not yet seen is the full effect on um, uh, domestic economies. But believe you me, that is going to happen in the coming months. And we will see over the course of 2019, um, the conditions that I've described in 1929, after that rally into 1930, you've then got that decline. And I think that we could well be facing a similar situation. The runes do not look good.
0: I think there's quite an interesting sign out there, an amber warning sign, I would say, that the the smaller companies, especially in the US, the Russell 2000 index is just way off the high. It's well away from the high. I think there's a fascination with everybody looking at the major stock indices and expecting that that reflects the US economy. But actually, the it, it's it's very clear that the russell 2000 is underperforming and to me that's something that as a technician i look at the charts and technical analysis to see where where the money's flowing it's obviously flowing into gold and silver and bitcoin at the moment um but it just seems to be very resistant to move into these these um you know smaller cap stocks and I think there's also pressures in Europe that, uh, that seem to be growing rather than easing. I don't know what your opinion is ab- about the European economies.
2: Well, we've got, <laughs> we've got um, uh, so many sort of cross-currents, uh, none of them really, really good. I mean, the bond markets are completely broken. I mean, there's something like 13 trillion of negative yielding uh, bonds. Now, this, this is, is, is lunacy. And it's a lunacy that is brought, brought about simply by uh, uh, banking and investment regulation. Um, you know, if you're running a portfolio, you have to invest the vast majority of that in regulated investments. You cannot even hold very much in the form of physical gold. You might be able to hold an ETF, yes. But guess what? Your thinking is only on those regulated investments and so you're forced to run out of the risks if you like in the market and you've just pointed out the Russell um, uh, you know the Russell index and that is if you like very much in accordance with the Pareto principle 80% of the economy is Russell not uh, S&P Dow I mean we're looking at the real engine if you like in America when you talk about the Russell index Um, not good uh Europe is an interesting one because you've got the potential of a banking crisis again. Um, Well, we've got a potential banking crisis and a credit crunch anyway, uh, virtually everywhere. But it's particularly acute in Europe um, when you see that um, banks like Deutsche Bank uh, have not only fouled up on their um, investment uh, uh, banking division, um, but they've also got the problem that they're in a very overbanked market with technology, um, undermining uh, uh, their branch networks. Um, and there's a the thing about uh, the banks in Europe, the, particularly the German banks, they don't actually run separate pension funds. What they do is they allocate money into assets so as to give um, a balance sheet, if you like, which from which they can guarantee to pay the pensions. And um, those assets basically are the buildings in which they have their branches. Uh, I mean, go money, we can do a transaction that costs absolutely nothing. Deutsche Bank, I don't know, if someone walks in, what's it, 10, 20 euros? I mean, basically, it's a bust model. And uh, you've got this combination, I think, of um, the fractional reserve banking problem. The the gearing in uh, uh, the European banks is still very high. It's, uh, I think, something in the region of anything, depending on the bank, anything between 12 and 20 times. And uh, you've also got the impossibility of running branch networks going forward in a very, very overbanked market. I do see uh, the potential for another credit Anstalt um, coming out of Europe and uh, destabilizing the global banking system.
0: In 1929, the Fed kept interest rates unusually high. They didn't drop them, which some say contributed to the breadth and the length of the, the downturn. With the Fed being trigger happy with dropping interest rates at literally the drop of a hat, do you still believe that the market can fall in that environment? Uh, Yes. I mean, there is one big difference.
2: In fact, the interest rate thing, I don't think actually matters all that much. Um, uh, You can't actually try and control um, business by manipulating interest rates beyond a degree um, and uh, when you get to a situation such as we have now where business is basically failing at zero real interest rates, uh, then, <laughs> you know, forget interest rates. It's not going to it's not going to achieve anything at all. Totally agree. Um, but the, the, the other big difference between 29 and now is that um, up until 1934 um, or 1933, rather, um, uh, America uh, was on a gold standard. And uh, so, consequently, you started off with sound money, and uh, the reflection, if you like, of the collapse in commodity prices was really commodity prices priced in gold. This time round, it's very, very different. This time round, there is no gold backing. Uh, you can't be a member of the IMF if you back your currency with gold. Um, wow. <laughs> apparently, I didn't yeah, know that. It's a, yeah, there's, there's, there's a thought. I discovered that the other day. Um, wow. Uh, but the thing that's fascinating is that this time uh, the the only solution they have got is the one which you've just predicated, and that is they reduce interest rates, and um, they cause uh, the issuance of, of of currency of money to expand exponentially, whatever it takes, in the words of um, Mr. Draghi. So you can see. What's going to happen this time? So we're coming back to Tim's point that the outcome is going to be inflate, inflate, inflate. And what nobody seems to realize in the Keynesian world is that if you inflate the currency, you are transferring wealth from the productive side of the economy to the issuers of the currency, which is the government, the central bank, and the banks and the bank's favoured customers. Everybody else gets screwed. And that is the problem with accelerating inflation. It is not a solution to our problems. It's just going to make things worse. And it's going to guarantee, ultimately, the collapse in the purchasing power of status of currencies.
1: See what just looking down to see what color my trousers are. They're actually black. But if they were black, probably wouldn't, probably wouldn't be too bad. Um, if we inject into this then an element of kind of like Brexit, where are you coming from in relation to what Brexit represents?
2: To my mind, the most important issue of Brexit is sovereignty and, and independence. Uh, I can't see any logical reason why we should be tied in with the European Union, which is effectively bust um, and whose banking system is is um, all but in a state of collapse or nearly colla- collapsing. We've got enough problem, I think, with our own banks without taking that one on as well. Um, the trade issue is not nearly as important as uh, people um, think it is. I was looking at the numbers actually for an article which will be released later on this afternoon. And uh, apparently, um, our total exports to the EU in 2017 was 6.75% of our GDP. That's all. Wow. And uh, bear in mind that um, if we're talking trade, if we're talking tr- trade agreement. We are talking about physical goods. We're not talking about services. So you can see that this whole thing, I mean, we've wasted three years for 6.75% of our GDP. And the opportunities that we might have had instead have basically floated by. It is um, completely nonsensical. I think... um, You know, part of the answer to your question, Tim, is that um, we're de-risking ourselves by coming out of the EU. We can't de-risk ourselves completely from it, but we de-risk ourselves a little bit. It's particularly important that we um, uh, get our sovereignty back. And only when we can do that have we got a chance of de-socializing our economy. We need to get back to free trade. And I just very much hope that whoever takes over from Mrs. May does understand that. Uh, and I think Boris Johnson in particular does understand it. Um, I don't know um, if you've read very closely what he's written, but just occasionally you get a little signal that he does actually understand classical economics. I'll call it classical economics rather than Austrian economics. Uh, but, um, I mean, I remember um, he wrote a 4,000 page, uh, word article, rather, um, in the Telegraph, Uh, I think it's going back a couple of years or something, I think it explained why he wanted uh, Brexit to happen. And in that, he referred to Frederick Bastiat's broken window fallacy. Mm. And that to me, I mean, I think the average reader would have, you know, sort of skipped that because it's completely meaningless. But that told me that he has a handle. Now, how much of a handle, I don't know, but he does have some sort of handle on classical economics. That, I think, means that uh, the new Brexit um, uh, cabinet, if it is formed, and it looks like it will be formed, is going to be uh, very much um, trying to drive the British economy back towards free markets. And I think the two ways in which they will do it, uh, the first is on trade. Um, The best way to deal with trade is actually to have no tariffs at all, no agreements, no tariffs. Just, you know, we're open for business. Um, And in a modern context, as long as you provide things uh, or offer things to the British consumer, which are in accordance with, um, you know, our standards, then we don't have a problem. Um, That, if you like, is the ultimate position which we should get to. It's quite a long way from just dealing with Brexit, but that's where we should go. And the second thing is government must not finance itself by printing money. I mean, if you look at what's happened since 2010, um, I think I'm right in saying that the uh, expansion of government debt uh, um, as, as a portion of GDP has gone up by something like 58%. It's a huge increase. And all that has come from printing money, either through QE or alternatively, um, uh, the banks, if you like, buying, um, uh, uh, buying government bonds or if when, pri- when the private sector individuals buy government bonds, what happens is that they're taking the money away from uh, the private sector. And that is made up by bank credit. So the idea that, um, you know, which was something that uh, monetarists were talking about a long time ago, that as long as the private sector, uh, non-bank private sector uh, fesses up for government bonds, it's not inflationary. No, I'm sorry, it is inflationary because of the replacement factor um, uh, within the private sector. So they must stop inflationary financing and return to free trade. And I think the rest will follow.
0: Could I, Could I just circle back very quickly to the broken window fallacy, which I heard from tim i thought tim for the listeners who don't know what that is would you like to explain it
1: sure so the broken windows fallacy is possibly one of the most profound parables in the history of of economics and it goes basically as follows so imagine there's a there's a glaze uh, there's a there's a a, a shop in paris and we're going back a few hundred years now and uh, uh, a little boy puts a, a brick through the window. And pretty soon a crowd gathers, and they go, "Oh, that's really bad news." The, uh, you know, the that poor, poor shopkeeper's now got to fix his window. And then go, someone else goes, "Ah, oh, no, but look at it this way. Now, now, now he's going to have to, you know, hire a glazier, and the glazier will come, and the money that the guy gives to glazier will then start circulating in the economy. So we should go around smashing everybody's windows." And then someone else goes, "Ah, oh, not so fast. You know, there's there's that which you can see, and there's that which you can't see." So I think the original essay was. Um, voir whatever what 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 that which is seen and that which is unseen, mm-hmm. and the problem with Keynesian economics is that everyone bangs on about, say, the government you know writing a big check for it's something trivial like let's say a trillion pounds of green um you know no no carbon um spending or whatever but the government writes a big check, and everyone goes that's fantastic, what they don't see is what that money could have been better put towards by, say, taxpayers, if it never had gone to the government in the first place. I think that was
2: very well put, if you I may say so. so. <laughs>
0: yes. Tim's good at that stuff.
2: <laughs> He's very good at that stuff. And I think um, I, was, I was actually thinking that um, you know, perhaps the, the, the little boy was Krugman in his youth. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we should
1: give a mention in dispatches to, to Paul Krugman, who is possibly one of the most overrated economists in the world, but that is clearly in midway through a gigantic list of uh, queue of people. But I think it was Krugman that said, uh, well, you know, we can easily get our way out of this recession because all we just need is space aliens to invade. And then the amount of money that that is that's required to defend the world against a, an invasion of space aliens, hey-ho, it'll be like QE to the power of 10. <laughs> Problem solved. <laughs> absolutely, I mean,
2: it's, it's it's absolutely nuts, isn't it?
1: Would you like to see to see a role for someone like Steve Baker in the Boris Johnson fantasy cabinet? Oh,
2: very much so. Um, I, I've known Steve uh, for a, for a while, um, and uh, obviously he's he he, he uh, writes for the Cobden Centre, or he's he's very much. I think he's on the board of the Cob, Cobden Centre, so. His thinking is very much free markets. And not only that, but he is a coherent um, thinker of free markets. And we've got, I think, not only him, but also, I think, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg, Paul Francois. I mean, I think if Boris gets it, he can pretty much assemble a cabinet um, which is very much dominated by free market um, economists or, you know, uh, people who, who, who. In- inherently believe in free markets, even though they may not be economists. Um, Steve, I think, yes, I would like to see him in a major role. Um, I'm not quite sure what that role would be. I sort of originally thought, um, and I expressed this a long time ago to Kevin Dowd, uh, that, that he should uh, perhaps be chief secretary to the Treasury. <laughs> I would like to. But I think I think in a sense, perhaps... Um, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg might be slightly better in that role. Um, uh, Jacob won't be flustered at all, and nor will Steve, incidentally. So, I mean, you, we've got good contenders, I think, for those spots. Who would be Chancellor? I don't know. I think um, I would love to see either one of them Chancellor, but that might be a stretch too far. You know, to go into the cabinet straight off. Mind you, having said that, you, we had a, a Labour government elected in 1997. With no ministerial experience whatsoever, and they went from there.
0: So it's not impossible. I just wanted to to circle back to the idea of a crash. How close? What sort of possibility would you put on there being a crash uh, in the stock markets in the next, say, twelve months? Um, is,
2: that's a difficult one. I, I think um, probably quite high. I don't want to frighten people because, no. quite honestly, I don't know. I, I really don't know.
0: Well, to be fair, nobody um, does, but it's just... No. Yeah,
2: I mean, my, my personal view is that if um, the 1929 experience is valid in today's context, then we should start to see stock markets sliding very, very soon. And
0: in 2007, 2008, during the crisis, um, some people have said that one of the reasons why the markets recovered so quickly was because China was in an upturn then, and consuming commodities and, and, and whatnot, at a, at, a, at a terrific clip. Do you think that there's a chance that China will become a growth engine and pull everybody along again? Or do you think they're in a more vulnerable position at the moment? I think the circumstances are very different. Um, uh, I mean, certainly, you're, you're right. I think
2: from not so much 2008, 9, but more maybe t- 2010 onwards, China was very much, if you like, the uh, locomotive pulling the rest of the world along. It used to be America many years ago, but uh, um, it it became China at that time. Uh, This time, I can't quite see how that's going to happen. Now, China, I think, um, will suffer um, quite badly um, in a credit crisis. I don't think she will suffer as badly as the rest of us. The reason I say that is that She controls her own large, you know, her her, her largest banks. She's already dealt with a shadow banking um, um, overhang, as it were, that was in 2017 into 2018. So inherently, she is more stable. That might surprise uh, a lot of people, that statement, um, because China notoriously has an enormous amount of debt. But the debt is, if you like, in the private sector, it's um, taken out by private industry, uh, it's taken out by local government, but that is the thing that has been addressed uh, to a substantial extent over the last three or four years. Government debt to GDP, I believe, is in the region of about 40 percent, and that compares with America at about 100 percent, us at about 100 um, percent, most of Europe, and particularly the Mediterranean, you know, the pigs, considerably more than 100 percent. So. China, in that sense, as a state, is in a pretty stable position. Um, I think the big question over China is whether she has moved away from her original understanding of what is money, and that is gold. I mean, if this is at a state level. And whether she has been completely subsumed into the Neo-Keynesian um, uh, belief that you can keep things going along by printing money and the last thing you want to have is um, Falling prices, rising purchasing power of the currency at a time when people are going out of work and all the rest of it. So there is that big unknown as to how China has evolved. But um, I think, at least as importantly, the pol- politics of the situation um, makes it almost impossible for China to be the locomotive pulling along the other countries in a global recovery. And the re- reason for that is that um, America has brought about um, a a tariff regime against China. That doesn't, to me, look like being resolved. China has made um, a big mistake in um, uh, imposing tariffs back on America. She should have just said, you know, you do what you want. We're not doing anything with tariffs. We're just going to run our own affairs. And if you don't like it, piss off. That's really what they should have said. But no, instead, they got into a tariff war, which was, I think, a big policy mistake. Um, the other problem, which is something which is which is uh, a lot deeper, is that with America going into, um, I think, a very deep recession and call it a slump if you like, um, what's going to happen to uh, the budget deficit is it's going to rocket out of all proportion, and this is happening at a time. When uh, foreigners are no longer net buyers of US treasuries, they are, if anything, turning into net sellers of the dollar, net sellers of US treasuries, simply as a function, not, not, you know, not because they don't like the dollar as much, but simply as a function of a contraction of cross border trade. If you get, if you don't have the cross border trade, then You don't have the reason to have, um, you know, sort of dollar investments, as it were, uh, as as part of your international strategy. So now, what's happening, and this is this explains what's been going on in Hong Kong. What has been happening is that the Chinese, with their twenty twenty five plan, are looking to attract uh, much of the capital flows, the savings, if you like, um, footloose around the globe. So we're talking about, you know. Pension fund money, insurance company money, sovereign wealth fund money, this big, big portfolio stuff. They want to um, have access to that to continue to develop their own infrastructure and also to develop the Silk Roads and the economies around those Silk Roads. So, this is a massive drain on global portfolio resources. And here we have America. The US Treasury has woken up to the fact that. If the money goes to China, America has a crisis. It can't fund its deficits. And that is the penny dropping in uh, the U.S. Treasury Department at this moment. And I think that is why they have stoked up. Um, This is, uh, incidentally, this little bit is uh, the way the Chinese are looking at, at it. The Americans have stoked up. Uh, uh, the the, um, uh, not the riots, but the demonstrations in Hong Kong uh, over this extradition thing and all the rest of it, they are trying to destabilize Hong Kong. They're trying to drive it off the dollar peg. They want uh, and the reason Hong Kong is important because the Shanghai Connect, which is the way foreigners invest in China goes through Hong Kong. They see Hong Kong as the pinch point to stop those portfolio flows going into China. That is why they're trying to destroy Hong Kong. Wow. Now, I don't know if that is one hundred percent true, but that is the way the Chinese are looking at it. Mm. So, I, it's a very long-winded answer to your question. No, it's great. But basically, basically, um, uh, I cannot see how China can rescue the world by acting as the economic locomotive uh, following the next credit crunch.
0: What part of the of, what part does the euro play? within Europe in causing economic hardship? Or do you not see it as any any kind of – it won't have any influence on the economy one way or another, and it's all a debt-driven um, – basically, it's a debt-driven problem that they've got? Well, it's a de- – I mean, one of the problems we have
2: with this is that we get bombarded in newspapers about, um, you know, how um, – If the only answer to the recession or whatever you like to call it in Europe or Italy or whatever is um, a weaker currency. And, uh, you know, people say that Italy's um, problems would be resolved if they went back to the euro or had a sorry No, they went back to the lira or or whatever. I mean, it's actually a load of hogwash. Is it really the problem? Yes, it is. The problem in Europe is that they have set themselves up in such a way that they have created enormous distortions. And it is the collapse of those distortions once market reality comes back, as it always does, that uh, will lead to the crisis in Europe. Um, I mean, let me give you an example. We've heard so much about the problems in Italy. Um, the non-performing loans being something like 19 percent of GDP, and if you bear in mind that government is over 50 percent of GDP, I think it's 52 percent in Italy, then that's the equivalent of non-performing loans in the private sector of nearly 40 percent. I mean, this is terrible, right yet yet, um, if like me, occasionally you go to Italy on holiday, um, and you sort of observe the locals, life goes on. It's all right. What's the problem? (laughs) You know, okay, the government hasn't got the money to chuck around, which um, it would like to have. And if I was an Italian, I would like to have from my government. But actually, um, you know, people are still going out uh, to the restaurants um, as much as they did before. And guess what? They've now got far better technology than they had in the past. Um, there's a washing machines aren't necessarily made in Italy, they're made in China. But you know, that comes along the Silk Road and two weeks is delivered. Bang. I mean, it's just so, you know, life is actually relatively normal. Now, if you looked at the economic statistics, you would say it's impossible for that to be the case, which just goes to show that statistics are lies. Yeah. I mean, they are yeah. no guide to anything. But I mean, Forget it. It's just an invention of the mathematical economists who actually don't understand economics. Right, but also but, but, there's, a great, there's a great deal of ruin in a nation.
0: But youth yeah. unemployment yes. is very high though. <laughs> youth, I'm un- sorry? youth unemployment oh. is very high. And that, oh, that yeah, and but, so the economy is yeah, really not doing very well. And the stock an interesting... market and the stock market's not doing very well, which is a great is a great indicator. But just, just to go back to your point about the the euro not being the problem i i disagree with that i think the euro is a problem and if you were to go back to i think nine early 1900s uh you'd be surprised to hear that the value of a single lira the swiss franc and the dollar were all one virtually parity and then if we take let's say late uh 1999 before the euro um well 1998, I guess, before the Euro came in in 1999, the Italian Lira was trading, I'm guessing now, and this is from memory, so I could be quite out, but to Sterling, I think it was around 2,800. If you look at any chart of the Deutschmark against the the, uh, the Greek drachma, against the Spanish peseta, the Italian Lira, it was always those those three currencies were declining in fact we had a joke in the foreign exchange world that there was going to be a single currency with uh you know italy greece and spain and they were going to call it yours now (laughs) um for those of you who don't know what yours means in, in when you're trading currencies yours mine when you're buying you say mine and when you're selling you're saying yours so it was kind of an insider currency traders joke that we, you always sell those three currencies. Now, when you've locked them together against the Deutschmark and given the Italians the ability to borrow at the same rate as the very prudent, or what was prudent, uh, Germans, you know, then it, it's it's absolutely crazy. You're mispricing the risk of the the sovereign nations. And I totally agree on the point that it, the markets will you can't buck the markets the markets will buck you as margaret thatcher said that's absolutely right it doesn't matter how far along the curve you go and how far you try to to fix the system which is what we're seeing at the moment eventually it will come back to bite you and that's why i, why I think that th- there are probably two problems here one is the euro obviously the other one is a lot of debt but if you, if they didn't have the euro they probably wouldn't have as much debt because the currency would be declining and there'll be more inward investment they'd be they'd have higher inflation sure but i I, I think i
2: think i think where sorry sorry to interrupt but i think where i i think uh where the difference lies in our approach is that you're blaming blaming the euro i blame the institutions as far as the money is concerned it is actually quite simple money is something that uh you use to translate your production into consumption. And um, it, it really doesn't matter um, what that is, as long as it's stable, as long as it's accepted by everyone around you. That's, that's, that is really the principal role of the euro. In that sense, the euro fulfills its function. Uh, the problem is the institutions. You have got the way in which the, the uh, various countries came together, the fact that uh, uh, none of them at the time actually um, uh, conformed with the Maastricht requirements. You know, they just turned a blind eye to it. Oh yes. They fiddled the figures for Italy to get in. They fiddled the figures um, subsequently for Greece to get in. And guess what happened? If you've got a, um, a, 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 a financial and monetary system, where the governments are guaranteed by each other, which was the way it was read, then why should I buy German debt, which was yielding 2%, when I can buy Greek debt, which is yielding 10%? percent i got to go yes. for the Greek, you know, oh, and the result nice. was, yeah, and the result was that profligate governments took advantage of it. I guess what? Today, we have negative interest rates. What are profit good government's doing? They're taking advantage of it. It's, yeah. I, you know, nothing has changed at all. The whole thing is a fix, but it's an institutionalized fix. I think to blame the euro as such is actually to miss the point. The main point is the whole system is corrupt and bust.
0: I do agree. With that. I do. I do agree with that. But I have to come back on the point about the euro. And this is where I see the difference. I'm not blaming the euro per se. Uh, you're looking at it as a currency and and therefore it's performing its function, and saying, saying that it's it doesn't matter, that it's it's not the main driver behind the problems. And I agree with everything you've said, apart from that. If you look at the UK, we've got sterling now everybody knows that a currency is reflected it reflects the health of your economy if your economy is doing badly your currency goes down if your economy is doing well your currency strengthens now that's not always 100% the case i mean that can be it can cause problems as we're seeing in switzerland but let's let's say that that's a general principle and it's something that we saw um, you know in the late 90s when the Asian currencies collapsed against the US dollar because their economies were doing really badly, because they were pegged to the US dollar. They weren't, they didn't get rid of their currencies and start adopting the dollar or just adopt a ASEAN single currency they were trying to peg their their currencies to the dollar because they did a lot of trade in, with the US so you could see what why the eurozone has done it because they do a lot of you know inter intermarket trading that they wanted to have a single currency to get rid of the cost of transferring their their lira to pesetas and and to the french francs etc et but it did more than that a currency allows an economy to move at a different rate so if the greek economy is worse than the, the italian economy then the greek drachma will weaken faster than the italian lira and therefore money will flow into the italian lira, or into the greek drachma and out of other currencies in order to effectively help that economy so it has a balancing mechanism and if you put one currency and just spread it blanket over a load of different economies then it effectively dampens it does not allow this this, this to happen. And one of the reasons why the UK economy has done particularly well recently is because our currency has been weak. I mean, aside from everything oh, else, oh. it's just been a weak currency. And oh. it's, sometimes it, um, can, it, can be, had... it can be as simple as that. <laughs> it can be as simple as that.
2: Uh, I, well, I think, I think that we've, we've got two, two ways of approaching this. One is as an investor, you obviously have to take into account uh, currency, as well as underlying investments, whether it's in gilts or equities or whatever. Um, But the other aspect of it is that um, if you actually look at um, the real economy, then that is, if you like, how an economy performs is very different from the statistics, which are uh, completely subverted by uh, the debasement of the currency. you know, the idea that uh, this country has done well because um, uh, we've had a weak currency um, is actually statistically probably correct, but in reality not. Because what happens is that you're transferring wealth through the debasement of the purchasing power of the currency. You're transferring wealth from the productive side of the economy to the government, to the banks, to the central bank, and to the bank's favoured customers. You cannot get away from that. Uh, The problem the problem is that our modern statistical approach to economics, um, which is very much Keynesian and uh, to a lesser extent monetarist, uh, conceals that very fact. And if you talk to an economist, they will say, "You must have um, a rate of inflation of two percent. Uh, that's the agreed rate. And so long as it doesn't uh, walk too far away from that, we can print as much money and credit as we like."
0: Yeah, well, that's that got is, rubbish. That's
2: absolutely. That's- rubbish. But that is, that is official policy Ooh. all around the world. And, you know, uh, this weekend, not only have you got the leaders meeting in, in, uh, in Japan, but you've also got the finance ministers meeting. And guess what? The central bankers. And they're all going to be saying exactly the same thing. Yeah. You know, oh, it's not nice. It's, not, it's chilly out there. We better print some more, more money. But what they don't seem to appreciate is they're transferring wealth from the productive side of the economy of their own economies to themselves. Uh, they are destroying their own seed corn. And this, to me, is absolute lunacy. And uh, the only way we get out of it, I think, is we have a crash. Unfortunately, we've got to the stage where uh, markets are now uh, so uh, distorted. I mean, the the concept of having a negative yield on a government bond is complete lunacy. Austria has just, yeah, Austria has just issued an, another tranche of a hundred-year bond to yield. I think about was it about one point seven percent or something? I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm going to leave that one to my grandchildren if I was to buy it. What's it going to do to my pension fund? For goodness' sake, you know, it's, it's, it is complete lunacy. So um, markets are broken, and uh, I don't know how they will unbreak, as it were um if there is such a word but this is complete lunacy and everything to do with the measurement of economic performance and all the rest of it is just hogwash
0: i remember i remember speaking to a banker many many years ago who said interest rates below i think it was around four percent is what he said Mm. don't mean anything and and i could see what his point was but that was way before interest rates got anywhere near 4%. I mean, this was when they were like 8 9%, you know, back in those days. And so, and it always stuck with me that, and I, you kind of made the point again, that um, if interest rates hit a certain level it's and people aren't investing, if they're not spending money and they're not borrowing it, then reducing interest rates again is just not going to have any effect at all. And we're clearly there. And I think a lot of old older hands, if I may say, um, in the market uh, uh, compared to, you know, people who just, who have got experience in the last like five years, just look at this whole situation for the craziness that we're seeing and just know that something has got to give because it's just completely and utterly unsustainable.
1: During, during the Gulf War, during Gulf War one, one of the U S generals was being interviewed, I think possibly by CNN. And the journalist said, uh, General, um, uh, is there any risk that, you, I mean, you're bombing the shit out of everything in Iraq. In Iraq, uh, Is there any risk you're going to run out of targets? And the general responded and he said, no, sir, this is a very target-rich environment. <laughs> having, ha- having, having, having listened to this conversation for the last hour, and particularly for what Alistair has brought to the table, I'm highly persuaded that we are in a very problem-rich environment
0: today. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: absolutely
2: true <laughs> I think that's a good one
0: <laughs> so gold money um what what I can see on the re- website that you've you've got some great research there, but what what does a client of gold money receive what what happens there?
2: Oh basically, um we are a non-bank custodian, and we store gold, silver uh, platinum, and palladium. Uh, for our customers and um, so we are not an intermediary if you like between a customer and his assets the customer owns the assets Um, we do two audits we do a metal audit which um, is is a particular skill and we do that I think twice or four times a year I can't quite recall whether that's changed recently Uh, and we also do financial audit um, uh, to confirm um, the, the value. So you've got those two audits of our customers' assets, which are held in, I think, something like 11 or 12 vaults around the world. And so you can, if let's say you're an American and you're worried that the government might confiscate uh, your gold, you can store your gold, say, in Switzerland or Hong Kong or Singapore or even Toronto, if you wish, and um, go and visit it. Um, so that's that's is if you like the core the core business. Um, we offer a dealing facility, and on top of that, we offer a facility so that you can preload your um, Mastercard, um, either uh, a Mastercard which would be either um, dollars, pounds, Swiss francs, um, or euros. So you've got those. Four currencies which you can which you can use. So when I go to Europe, I use um, my euro card. When I go to America, I use my dollar card. In the UK, I use my sterling card all the time. And I just preload it as as I go. So um, I can maintain, um, I mean, in investment terms, a bull position, if you like, in these physical. Uh, um, uh commodities these physical precious metals uh and uh, use use them as the basis for spending so um we might mo- we effectively we monetize um we offer you the facility of monetized um uh precious metals um at some stage i think that once the paper currencies collapse then I'm not quite sure how we go from there, but uh, I I would suspect that we will probably have a network of people dealing one with another. And in this context, what's interesting is the rise of um, cryptocurrencies, because uh, they are looking to do a similar sort of thing um, as money comes out of uh, ordinary currency, state-issued currencies. they can provide a safe haven. Now, there is an interesting thing on this. Um, I would uh, expect the millennial generation in particular uh, in the West to think in terms of escaping from the Western banking system by buying Bitcoin rather than buying gold. They may buy gold as well, but I think they will see the cryptocurrency scene as something more natural to them. Yes. Now, what this... I mean, if if you think this through, um, then what happens to the banks is that you know we we can't queue up outside Barclays Bank or Northern Rock or whoever it might be that we've got our deposits and we're worried about them. We can't queue up and take it out in cash anymore. That's effectively being being ruled out. Um, and the reason for that is actually very very simple, and that is that uh, the, the the Bank of England wants to internalise, if you like, the problem, so that uh, if the There is a run on one bank, um, you know, depositors withdrawing money, they will at least deposit it at another bank, and the Bank of England can supervise the recycling of the imbalances so that a bank in trouble does not end up, if you like, uh, being the victim of a bank run. So that is why they they do it. But uh, we now have a new situation. Let us assume that um, depositors as a whole Begin to worry about the security of their deposits in the bank. How do they get out of it? Well, the answer basically is that they will sell cash on deposit deposit in their bank for a good. Now, this was in, if you go back all the way to um, 1923, this was the crack up boom um, that that Mises talked about and all the rest of it. Um, But it's a crack up boom with a difference. The problem is, it's not. buying things for cash, because you no, wonder, no longer want the cash, you want the things, even though you don't need the things. Now what you're doing is you're passing the parcel from one person, you, who doesn't want the cash, to another person who probably also doesn't want the cash. So what does that do to prices? What it does to prices is that it means that the purchasing power of the currency in a, a banking crisis of this sort starts falling very, very rap- rapidly, a lot more rapidly than you might think. Now, this is this is interesting because the very existence of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin could actually accelerate the process. Some some people will criticise what I'm saying, they're saying, well, how about uh, deposit protection? Yes, deposit protection protects you up to I think it was what seventy-five thousand pounds or something, um, and in America, I think it's uh, it's, it's it's a higher figure in dollars. It's 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 over a hundred thousand, but That's fine if you've got a small amount on deposit. If, on the other hand, you are a reasonably wealthy person and you've got um, more than that on deposit, you're not protected. And furthermore, there are rules involved in this. Um, You know, if you're, let us say, um, you've got a number of accounts and you've spread them around and you find that uh, the bank goes bust, um, are you protected on all those accounts? If there's one banking license and three accounts under one banking license, no, you're not. And so you've got these complications. I mean, do you really want to get into that sort of thing? Um, Bitcoin is growing up. No, I think I better get rid of my cash and get into Bitcoin. I feel safer with that. That's likely to be the mantra uh, on the next credit crisis. And this to me is fascinating because it calls into question uh, what Bitcoin and similar cryptocurrencies really uh, are. And um, a lot of people and including a lot of Austrian economists, have taken the view that Bitcoin is not money. Now, <clears throat> it's certainly not money in the sense that um, it's a stable unit of value. But it is money in the sense that it is constructed in such a fashion that um, so long as people uh, you know, sort of want it, the uh, supply is extremely limited. And the supply actually gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And there is a crossover point, perhaps, um, in about, I don't know, five or 10 years time, where the supply of gold, in theory, is at a faster rate than the supply of Bitcoin. So, you know, this is raising questions in my mind, and I think should raise questions in other people's minds about how Bitcoin is likely to affect the evolution of the next credit crisis, it could actually have a very dramatic effect. I'm not saying that Bitcoin is going to last as money, and I'm not going going to commit myself to the idea that Bitcoin actually is money. Um, It's just got some of the characteristics of money, particularly at the moment, that is, of preserving capital. And there are good reasons behind that, the way it has been constructed, um, that means that as a store of value, it knocks spots of any um, inflatable state currency, and at some stage, could provide a safe haven from a state
0: currency. I think the other important point about Bitcoin is it's whatever you, however you describe it, it's also a payment network, as opposed to just a inverted commas, cryptocurrency, the dollar's just the dollar and the pound's just the pound. But Bitcoin is not only a has, you know, you can break it down into its sub units, but it's also a payment system that you can load onto your computer to make payments anywhere in the world. And I think that if there is another banking crisis that I totally agree becomes extremely valuable and very powerful, Um, especially if these countries start to bring in capital controls, if there's any sniff of that. Then I think you'll see a lot of money shifting into the into the Bitcoin space or the cryptocurrency space in general. Yes, I
2: would agree with that entirely, and I think it's a very good point. And I think you could add to that that the network is not in anyone's control, not in any government's control, so that uh, they can, on a local basis, um, ban you from buying Bitcoin, uh, make it difficult for you to deal with Bitcoin, tell the banks not to settle any cryptocurrencies, et cetera. They could do that, but they can't actually stop the system.
0: What do you think? Should we go to media picks or?
2: I think just a light in the, light in the mood. Let's, <laughs> let's move on.
0: Just before we do that, have you heard about this asteroid that's, uh, that, that's, that's apparently got a seven seven $700 quintillion dollars worth of gold on it? Um, no. All <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> apparently there's, NASA have discovered this asteroid and it's uh, – it's called 16 Psyche, I believe, and it's uh, right. it's it's just got uh, it's a huge amount of gold in it. I mean, it's just quite funny because Tim was saying the other day that that my uh, biggest
1: my biggest nightmare is the idea that an asteroid made of pure gold would crash into the Earth.
0: Well, well <laughs> they, they've just discovered one, Tim. But uh... I know
2: it's the end. It's the end of days,
0: clearly.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I, I wouldn't worry about it. The Fed will make sure it's deflected.
0: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
2: Well the other thing is but this is a very serious point it's
1: alleged to be worth 17 quintillion i guarantee it cannot possibly be worth that because if it's got as much gold on it as it has the price of gold will not be what the price of gold is
0: absolutely yeah no, that's yes, true yes,
2: absolutely yes. No, i do agree
0: <laughs> so on on to media picks i can i'm going to segue from the asteroid to my media pick for this week which uh, I'm a little bit hesitant to say because it's a show that's being uh, presented by Brian Cox, and I.
1: I Uh, Oh my god! And I was expecting Tim
0: not to be very happy about that, but unfortunately, the series is absolutely brilliant, and it's called The Planets. It's on the BBC, and it's about the uh, the formation of our planets and the solar system, and the theories uh, surrounding how the the solar system formed. And it's just utterly amazing. I mean, it really is jaw-dropping. Um, some of the things that they've discovered. I don't want to ruin it by telling you any of the theories that they've come up with, but they explain why Mars is, you know, relatively the same size or would have been the same size as the Earth, but but had very similar um, climate to us, but obviously didn't develop into an Earth-like um, environment they Um, had
2: climate they had climate change (laughs) they had climate change
0: yes exactly that they just simply had climate change but they they put forward the reasons why that was the case and they go through all the planets individually and and but what is truly fascinating is the role of jupiter and saturn in why the earth is the way it is if it wasn't for jupiter and saturn we basically wouldn't exist and for that reason life on this planet is, or life in general, is far, far less likely than they thought because of, because of some just chance things that happened as to how the solar system formed. Um, you know, Earth-like planets of, uh, are relatively rare. And when you watch it, you'll see what I mean, but it's, it's utterly brilliant. And so that's- Did, he, came, so, did he come up with,
2: with, with, with any um, uh, interesting um, facts on the relationship between Mars and Venus?
0: um not that i can think of no (laughs) no uh no not specifically no not that i can remember but i was just really taken in by the by the role that uh, that jupiter played it's just it's just utterly fascinating and the special effects and the recreations are really good they've done a a really great job of, of making you really feel like you're seeing the planets um you know it that that it's real you know so they've done done some fantastic computer simulations of it so but it's utter, utterly fascinating i would it really makes you think it really does so um well
2: it's it's nice it's nice to see the bbc spending our money on something which is
0: watchable yeah i mean that's the thing about the bbc they do things right but they they can't get news right at all i mean it's absolutely bloody appalling um, when it comes to news but when it comes to things like this you know, I th- I think they should just stick to that and f- just drop news altogether.
2: But, I dro- dropped the BBC in well, my view. <laughs> yeah, well,
0: make it a private corporation. Um But yeah. Anyway. Um, so so Tim, what have you got for this for us this week? I
1: I feel a bit cheeky on this one because it's actually your pick from last time, ah. i I've, I've snuck in there. So I took out a Now TV free weekly pass.
0: You bastard. Just,
1: Just so I could watch Chernobyl.
0: you bastard! (laughs) You didn't invite me over either. and I haven't got to see it.
1: But but I'm sure we'll talk about it again because it's it's. I I actually had lunch with a a Russian (laughs) chap earlier in the week, and he said he wasn't going to watch it because he thought it would be too Hollywood. Well, I've I've binge watched the entire thing on Monday, and I can tell you this is not standard Hollywood fare by a long chalk. I'm just going to give. I I think we'll come back to it. So I'm just going to give one line or one one quote from, from the, the piece. This is the HBO miniseries. This is a guy called Professor Valeri Legasov, who's kind of the hero of the piece. And uh, Chernobyl is something called an RBMK reactor, which is basically a cheap Russian technology that's, there was, as we now know, you know, catastrophically unsafe. An RBMK reactor uses uranium-235 as fuel. Every atom of U-235 is like a bullet traveling at nearly the speed of light, penetrating everything in its path. Woods, metal, concrete, flesh. Every gram of U-235 holds over a billion trillion of these bullets. That's in one gram. Now, Chernobyl holds over three million grams, and right now it is on fire. Winds will carry radioactive particles across the entire continent. Rain will bring them down on us. That's three million billion trillion bullets in the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. Most of these bullets will not stop firing for 100 years. Some of them not for 50,000 years. Now, if that isn't a mic drop quote, I'd like to know what is. (laughs) The whole thing—it is just shattering. The whole thing is just—I mean, I—I—I was a kid when Chernobyl happened, and I knew. I mean, as I remember, because this was kind of like a day a one-day wonder in the British media, from what I can recall, and the, the, the worst that sort of we experienced was basically moving, you know, sort of uh, sheep around in the in the Welsh in the Highlands of Wales, and there was concerns about you know yes. how, whether they'd be affected. But other than that, I, I don't think it was a huge deal. Um, just to, one stat, which may well be inaccurate, but I'm um, because I got it from Wikipedia. Okay, so this is just the the economic impact from Chernobyl on Belarus. Do you want to have a guess? This is, this is a figure uh, attributed to, by 2005, the accumulated cost to Belarus alone was estimated at what? In billions of dollars, or millions of dollars, prefer. have a guess. <laughs>
0: ten, oh, what 10 billion?
2: So they haven't got a lot, lot of money. I nice. would have thought they've probably spent very little on it. I should think probably, I don't know, I should think sort of 10 to 20 million rather than anything else.
1: So this is a, this is a Wikipedia stat, so I, it comes with all those caveats. By 2005, the accumulated cost of Belarus alone was estimated at $235 billion. Wow.
2: But uh, they don't have that money and they haven't borrowed it. So I'm not quite sure. where. It, it, maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a rogue statistic, but the, 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 the bottom
1: line I guess you know, I'm getting at is I, I had no idea of just how devastating the, the aftermath of Chernobyl was. Yeah, um, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was this bad. Well, well, yes. yes. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so you'd thoroughly, <laughs> yeah, thoroughly recommend it. No, I thoroughly recommend. I mean, it's grim. It is unremittingly grim. I don't think there's a single jug. I mean, I, it's it's five episodes, roughly an hour apiece. Mm. That's five hours with the material. I don't think I caught a single joke in the entire proceedings. And mm. but to be fair, it isn't exactly a laughing matter.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: It sounds to me like we should stay in the relatively calm waters of falling markets.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I remember 1929,
2: 89% of the Dow. Luxury. (laughs) (laughs) Luxury, yes, exactly. (laughs) At least the price of coffee went down. (laughs) Oh, dear. dear.
0: Absolutely. So, Alistair, what what would you have for us as a media pick? Well,
2: I'm not a media freak at all. Um, I... Actually, I, I'm watching less and less television. Um, occasionally, I go out and see a film, but I don't think I've seen one for a little while. Um, I, um, my last venture out, I went to the Seychelles and had um, uh, a fortnight there, which was lovely. I think, I think <clears throat> we'll allow experiences. Yeah. We'll allow experiences part of this. Oh, right. Okay, well, the, the Seychelles, I'm not going to recommend the Seychelles um, for the very simple reason that I would rather people went to the Galapagos Islands and left the Seychelles in their pristine environment for people like me who can really appreciate
0: it. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, it
2: it is really beautiful. It's lovely. And um, the thing that was really nice was that at breakfast in the Hilton one day, um, uh, one of the the wait, you know, one of the, the waiters at, at breakfast, um, I noticed um, that he spoke Swahili. So. I greeted him in Swahili, which is my Swahili is extremely rusty, and we had a conversation. He came from Nairobi, so he's, he's obviously cuckoo you out on leave, if you like. Um, and, uh, oh, it's just a, it's just a, uh, it's just a, a, a heaven. Not a place to go to, um, not a place for bright nights or anything like that. But if you like, um, you know, sort of snorkeling, scuba diving, if you like, Nice sandy beaches, um, as unpolluted as you probably see in the Indian Ocean. Um, if you like places like Mauritius, but without the crowds and without the rip offs, then Seychelles is probably the place to go. This podcast when has you... been sponsored
0: by the Seychelles Tour. <laughs> <Yeah>, absolutely. <laughs>
1: <laughs> when, when, you were, you... when you were yeah. ambling through the Seychelles, did, uh, did Rory Stewart put in an appearance? No, he didn't.
2: I'm glad to say. Um, <laughs> I, th- I think that qualifies you for some kind of a prize. <laughs> no, um, I was sort- I was also cut off uh, from um, you know what was really going on here. Oh, bliss! Uh, in- Absolutely. Yeah. Well, internet internet reception was um, pretty poor in the islands. Um, I think, Tim, if you and I decided that that was a place to go and. Retire to write, as it were, and not get disturbed. The lack of internet would probably rule it out. Um, but I did have this sort of vision as a as a, as a writer that um, you know what Ian Fleming did with Goldeneye, um, his hide, hideaway in Jamaica, was actually the way to do it. Yeah, I suppose mm-hmm. you can do that with a novel, but um, for what we're doing, we we do need to have access to facts and figures and all the rest of it, which really does mean internet. Mm-hmm. Um, but other than that, I think it's you know the place is
0: faultless. It's lovely. Maybe that's a, a business opportunity to set up you know Wi-Fi and broadband there.
2: Uh, well, I think I think G five. If if we can get the Americans off this stupid banning of Huawei, yeah, G five G five would sort it actually. Yes. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Um, actually, I mean, there's yes. a
2: good there's a good enough mobile signal all all around the islands more or less um and uh, i think g5 basically um does it because i don't know i don't know the detail of the technology and everything but i'm told by one of my sons who is in the business that g5 will probably put broadband out of business
0: yeah yeah I've i've heard the same actually but it's it sounds so crazy that you'd be able to get the equivalent on a phone it's just this this next big leap so it would be amazing if we we do get uh, that sort of technology. So let's see. But yeah, fascinating. Yeah. The, the, only, the,
2: the, only, the only other thing I would say, actually, talking about the sort of um, outtakes, as it were, is um, I had delivered yesterday um, a book by a chap called Seif Dean Amos, who is an Austrian economist who lectures at the Lebanese University somewhere or other. And he's written a book called The Bitcoin Standard, The Decentralized Alternative to Central Banking. Published by Wiley, um, it's a new book, ish I think, um, and I'm finding it very interesting. About the first half of it, um, and you'll be interested in this, uh, Tim. It's, 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 history it's, it's of gold, isn't it? Well, it's 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 pure it's it's pure Austrian economics. Yeah, it's quite simple. I mean, he <laughs> I'm not sure that his case is um, is is completely watertight, but I just found it interesting that here was an Austrian economist. With a rather different take on it from most of the other Austrian economists I've heard pine on the subject of cryptocurrencies.
0: Brilliant. So would would you give that as a recommendation as well then? Yes, I would.
2: Yes. Um, and there I is. think for anyone, you know, for anyone looking at um, or trying to understand, um, uh, you know, Bitcoin and what its impact is likely to be, and whether they should get involved or not, and so on and so forth, or how they might get involved. How it might affect our futures, I mean, indirectly as well. I think it's the sort
0: of book which um, certainly is thought provoking and well worth reading. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well,
1: I'm, I'm just going to very quickly push the envelope of good taste um, oh. for a change. So, <coughs> brace yourself, so, listeners. Bra- brace, brace. Uh, this is not necessarily the most politically correct joke, and it's probably going to be masked by my delivery anyway. So, Alistair mentioned uh, Fleming and uh, Gold Nine Jamaica. So, a guy goes to a Jamaican barber he says, uh, I'd like a haircut, please. And the barber goes, yes. He goes, no, just top of my head will be fine.
0: <laughs> <laughs> <Dear it.
1: laughs> oh. uh,
0: and on that bombshell. <laughs> and on that bombshell. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Very thought-provoking. And, you know, we, we'd love to have you back.
2: Yeah, well, um, it's been great fun. And Thank you very much indeed for asking me.
0: Tim, thank you, as always. Uh, I will leave that joke in, I think.
2: Um,
1: <laughs> Alistair, if people want to get in touch, uh, oh, yes. you're, you're on Twitter, thank right?
0: Thank you, Tim. Yes. Yeah.
2: Um, and uh, I'm, I'm also on gold money. Where do you live, Tim? Are you in London? I'm in London, yes. Yeah, central London. Yeah. Because um, I come up from time to time. Um, we might get together if if you're in central London. I'd, it I'd might be, be quite I'd, fun. I'd be delighted to. Yeah. You. Okay, well
1: we'll, well, we'll arrange something. If, you, if, people want, if people want to reach you on Twitter, what, what's your handle there?
2: Um, oh, gosh, I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> let, 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 let me have a... Let me have a... At, no, it's
0: at McLeod Finance. At McLeod Finance. Okay, we'll put yep. that in the show notes as well as obviously a link to Gold Money and your media picks. Um, thank you once again for coming on the show. It's, it's been absolutely, absolutely brilliant. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you to everybody for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Tim.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank
0: Thank you. Bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.